just to encourage you, this morning we're going to look at an entire book. Um, but it's actually Haggai, so it's not so bad because it's only two chapters. Okay, uh, just before we do that, um, I just want to set some context for it. So I've got some uh, slides to, uh, to show. Um, they will immediately look confusing, but concentrate on the white lines. It's much easier to read in the book, but this is the first time I've, I've seen it presented. Um, what we're actually uh, seeing here, these white lines are really the, uh, uh, some key nations. Um, this one is Israel. Uh, this one uh, looks to be Egypt. And this is um, Assyria and uh, Babylon and, and Persian empires. <coughs> the important thing just to note here, of course, is that um, Israel was, was doing okay under King David and then King Solomon. And the problem with Solomon was he went off the rails and started to uh, get into the local idols rather than God. And one of the things Solomon did was built the first temple, which is important for us today. But because the nation uh, went away from God, <coughs> uh, God, um, through various prophets, uh, spoke to them to try and correct them, but they ignored him. And so one of the things that happened was he split the nation. So Israel split into two. There was the northern kingdom, which were ten tribes, um, and they were under. They went off under King Jeroboam, and they went off even more after idols. And Judah, which was the southern kingdom, under Rehoboam, and uh, I think that they perhaps weren't so much of a problem, but they still went off um, after idols. <coughs> and uh, one of the things God explained to them many times that He would do would be, in effect, to turn his back on them and send them off into exile. So he would dissolve the nation. And uh, that was part of the punishment. And the northern kingdom um, was uh, taken over by uh, Assyria. Uh, the northern kingdom is also called Samaria. So when we talk about the, the Good Samaritan... Um, Later on, way back down here, somewhere in time, um, the Good Samaritan came from the, well, what was then left of the Northern Kingdom, re-established, and uh, the, uh, the woman from Samaria, um, they, they fit in the Gospels. But um, somewhere around, so you see here, uh, Assyria came and uh, captured the Northern Kingdom and sent all of the people into exile. Um, a bit later on, which I think was um, something like 586 BC, um, here, uh, Assyria was uh, threatening uh, the southern kingdom, Judah, and uh, Syria was overtaken and captured and then ruled by uh, Babylon, and King Nebuchadnezzar uh, took, uh, captured uh, Israel and Jerusalem, and he sent the people off into exile. And these lines here going off represent the people going into exile. And they were in exile for something like uh, 70 years before they 
uh, well, before God arranged for their return. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who uh, captured Israel, destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, just completely knocked it down. And uh, back up here, um, Cyrus, King Cyrus, who was uh, the king of Persia, uh, captured the Babylonian Empire. And one of the things Cyrus did was decreed um, that the Jews could return to Israel um, and sort of rebuild. And that's what this line represents. So they their return. So what we see here, uh, there, there were kind of two returns. One under a guy called Zerubbabel, who was uh, a descendant of David. And he had with him... Uh, the high priest called Joshua, and they went back to rebuild the temple. And a bit later on, uh, Nehemiah returned to build the walls and rebuild uh, Jerusalem. So what we see here is really the tale of uh, Israel's unfaithfulness to God, uh, God's punishment of Israel, where he separated the nations and then they were taken off into captivity, and then uh, the working of God's grace as he begins to restore uh, Israel. Uh, could you do the next slide, please? Sorry, yep. Yeah, sorry. Back. Sorry. Yep. In the second half, um, I should be referring to Isaiah. Oh, we will see Isaiah in a, perhaps in a bit. Yeah. Well, I've got a slide of the prophets in a moment that I'll show him. So if you could uh, move forward. So. Um, yeah, so there's Isaiah. So this is the same picture again, but this is looking at the prophets. So here you see the, uh, the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonian Empire and the Persian Empire are up here. This is the northern um, country of, uh, of Israel or Samaria going off into exile. This is Judah, the southern uh, country, going off into exile. Uh, here you see Isaiah, that, who Mick will be talking about. Here you see Daniel. Um, or referring to. Um, here you see Daniel, and um, there's Jeremiah, who we've heard about. And if you notice here, at the end, we've got the, uh, the people returning to Israel with uh, Zerubbabel and, uh, and Joshua. Here's Zechariah, that uh, Derek talked about through um, uh, Revelation. And here is Haggai, and what Haggai, can you just go to the next one, which has got that in a little more detail. So it's just kind of blown up. So Isaiah's back down here. Here's Zechariah and Haggai. They're working together. Well, they're working really at the same time. Um, this return to, uh, uh, to the country was about 520 BC. And don't forget with BC, the numbers get bigger the further you go back in history because uh, it all starts around zero. Um, so at about 520 BC, uh, was it 520? No, um, 580, 536 they came back um, uh, and started to uh, rebuild the, uh, the temple. There was, a, uh, there was a lot of opposition to the temple and they were forced to stop building the temple. And about 10 years after they'd stopped building the temple, 
Haggai comes on the scene shortly afterwards, literally within a couple of months, uh, Zechariah, to encourage the, uh, the, the Jews to start again building the temple. And so uh, the temple was then built, I'm not sure where it would be on the scale, but somewhere around here, uh, around 516 BC, six years later, six years after Haggai and Zechariah, uh, the temple was completed. So that's the kind of context. Um, and what we'll now do is just read uh, a little bit from uh, Haggai and uh, then we'll uh, talk about it. So if you can find Haggai uh, chapter 1 and uh, we'll read to uh, chapter 9 in, uh, sorry, verse 9 in chapter 2. Yeah. So remember, the the temple, they started building the temple, they were stopped by opposition, they were actually stopped by force, um, and an edict from the king at the time, King Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes has died or been uh, disposed of or whatever happened to kings in those times, and the king is now King Darius. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be, uh, to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on your clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured, says the Lord. You expected much, but you brought... um, Sorry, you expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home... I blew away. Why? declares the Lord Almighty. Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle and on the labour of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message to the, uh, of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord, So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, 
and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, then high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, uh, governor of Judah, to Joshua, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the, uh, of the land, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and the desired of all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. So we'll dip into some verses in uh, uh, another bit of chapter 2 a bit later, and there's a couple more pictures to show you um, in a moment. But the first question, why is uh, looking at this important? Well, because we see here um, a question of whether God's people are actually devoted to God or not. And we see that the result of their their devotion to God turns out to be um, an obedient effort in accordance with God's plan. God's plan here to be to re-establish, rebuild the temple. Now, just for a moment, why was that important? Why was it important to rebuild the temple? The temple is the heart of the nation of Israel. God called Israel out of Egypt to be his nation and a witness to the world, basically. We see that many times. And he established what we read in here was his covenant relationship. And that meant God promised that if they were his people, he would be their God and would care for them and watch over them and they would grow. What we saw when the nation split were the people choosing not to be God's people. And so then God uh, chose effectively not to be their God for that period. So why is it important? Because we see a lesson here about the devotion of God's people. When they weren't devoted, things were hard. When they were devoted, that devotion led to obedience to God. They sought to do the things that God wanted to be done. And more than that, we see in there also the fact that God provided for his work. And there are some obvious lessons for ourselves as we look through, as we can draw out. It becomes not only an examination of that time in Israel's history, uh, but it becomes a question that we can ask ourselves about our own devotion. But I still haven't answered the question, why was the temple important? 
The temple was the heart of the nation. It's where God showed himself to be. And without the temple, there could be no Jerusalem. A bit later on, Nehemiah went back and built the walls and built Jerusalem. Without Jerusalem, there would be no nation. And without a nation, there would have been nowhere for Jesus to have been born into. There would have been nowhere for him to minister. There would have been nowhere for him to tell us of salvation. There would be nowhere for him to sacrifice himself for sin. And had he not done that, then all of the things that Derek has been talking about through Revelation, about the return of the Lord, about the collection of his people to be with him for eternity, would not have happened. So what we actually see here is a very important, pivotal moment in the history of God's plan. Were there no temple, there would be no Jerusalem. No Jerusalem, no nation, no nation, no Christ, no Christ, no salvation. And so it's utterly important that this nation is put back together again. And that's what we see God doing. That's why this is a really important time and why the devotion of the people are important. It was necessary for them to be devoted to God, to serve God, so that God's plan could be fulfilled. But look at the challenge that uh, Haggai, I nearly called him Nehemiah for a moment, Haggai made of the people. The question he asked of them. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses? while this house remains a ruin. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. What were the reasons that they weren't building the temple? Well, the first one was, they're saying it's not the right time. Why might that be? Well, there's this political opposition. Ten years previously, there would have been an edict from uh, King Artaxerxes that they should be stopped. And the local authorities in the states around, in the provinces around, came and stopped them by force. We read in, uh, I think it's Ezra chapter 4. You can read all of this in the the book of Ezra. So that political opposition is still there. And there is no change of edict from the king. So they're saying, now is not the right time. But why else might it not have been the right time? Well, we saw that there was... Uh, there was a drought, there was a famine. We saw that they didn't have um, the, uh, well, as much food as they want. Their money went into purses with holes in. Everything was expensive. And their money just ran away. So they're saying, perhaps, we don't have the resources to complete God's work. Economically, it was tough. And we can see in Haggai 6, um, 1.6, God says... You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. And a bit later in verse 9, You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy in his own house so they're finding it economically difficult and therefore perhaps they're saying we don't have the resources to build 
this temple. But God, as we see in a moment, tells them through Haggai, just go do it. They might also say, we haven't got the time, because things are so hard, we've got to put all our effort in to uh, keeping it together and panelling our houses. In 1.4, yeah? In uh, that verse 4. If there's a text, this is the text. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house, house remains a ruin? God isn't complaining that they've got houses. He's complaining that they've got panelled houses. So they've expended their time and their effort upon luxury whilst ignoring God. They've put themselves first. They've provided the basics that they needed which was a place to live, but then they put their effort into the luxury and did not expend time on God. And in this particular context, obviously, he's talking about um, building their houses and making their houses luxurious, while the temple, which they'd begun to build ten years previously, but only got as far as the foundation, is still in that ruin. It's still not completed. Those were the reasons they gave. It's not the right time. We don't have the resources. We haven't got the time to do this. But what else about the challenge? Haggai passed on God's message. Because you aren't putting me first, I'm not putting you first. Because you aren't putting me first, I have withdrawn my blessing from you. In verse 11 of chapter 1, I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, and on the labour of your hands. And in that verse 9, just before that, you expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. Why? I blew it away. God has withdrawn his blessing from the people, because they have not Uh, living out a devoted and obedient life to him to achieve his plan, to achieve the purpose that he sent them there to do. They only went back to rebuild the temple and to re-establish the nation and they weren't doing it. And if for a moment you think, well, can God really affect the weather? Can he really do this? Doesn't the weather just work on its own? Then Jeremiah had some things to say about that. In uh, chapter 10, he said, But God made the earth by his power. He founded the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his understanding. In other words, God is the creator. When he thunders, the waters in the heavens roar. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. Poetic language, yes, but nonetheless a description of the fact that God controls the weather, the climate, the nation. Um, And in uh, Jeremiah 14, uh, Jeremiah writes, Do any of the worthless idols of the nations bring rain? Do the skies themselves send down showers? No, it is you, O Lord, our God. Therefore our hope is in you, for you are the one who does all this. So God commands the weather, and therefore When he chooses to, he can withdraw the blessing of the weather and with it the consequences. And we've seen those. It was hard economic times. It was hard to find the produce. They had to put all their effort in 
uh, to keeping on going. But they still had some left over to panel their houses. So what was the real challenge then that Haggai made? He challenged the status quo. He said, you're saying it's not the right time. You're happy with this political situation and you're prepared to stay in it. You're happy with this economic situation and you're prepared to stay in it. Perhaps it had become comfortable. But what his challenge was, was to go and start the work again for God. And he said, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I might might take pleasure in it and be honoured, says the Lord. His challenge was, don't give in to the situation. Don't be content with that uh, circumstance that you're in. You're giving me excuses. Go and do the work that you're being asked to do. And what was their response? Haggai 1, verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. When it says feared the Lord here, what it's talking about is awesome respect. They understood and appreciated and accepted that Haggai had come from God. He'd been sent with a message from God. And they accepted the fact that God was justifiably uh, upset with them and that he had justifiably withheld his blessing. And they were awestruck with the fact that he could do that. Perhaps they'd forgotten that he was the all-powerful God and that he had control of the climate and the weather and the situation. But whatever, they developed this awesome respect for God. Excuse me. And then we read on in uh, from verse 13. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you. They had turned around and become devoted to God. And God now says, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, of Joshua, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began work on the house of the Lord. They again appreciated who God really was and all that they owed to him. They became devoted to him in their respect of him and devoted to him in their service. And so they began to build the temple again. And six years later, it was completed. But it wasn't without objection. If you go and look into um, uh, Ezra chapter 5 and 6, not that we'll do that now, but you'll see that the same people that were still opposed to them ten years previously are opposed to them now. And they write to King Darius and say, look what these guys are doing. You're going to lose control of the, uh, uh, of the province if you let them continue. Darius looked into the archives and understood what Cyrus had done. King Cyrus, remember him? He's the one that said they can go back. The Jews can go back and rebuild. He saw that and he said, okay, I will allow them to go back. So he wrote back to these people in opposition and said to them, 
Do not hinder them in any way. More than that, pay for it. So the work was paid for from the treasury and the operation of the temple. All the sacrifices become paid for by the temple. I am with you, says God. You're doing my work. I am with you. I will provide. And he provided. Note too, none of those original objections stood in their way once they had a correct view of God and his power and his might. They were no longer concerned about the fact that it might not be the right time. And so they went ahead knowing there would be political opposition, but knowing that God was with them and therefore he would overcome that opposition. They went ahead knowing they didn't have the necessary resources, but God was with them, therefore he would provide. And in a moment, we will see that provision. Can you just put the um, last two slides up? So, in a moment, um, we'll see God talking about asking them, um, do you think that what you're doing is nothing? Um, and he starts by in, um, in chapter 2 by uh, asking them this question. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? Seventy years before Solomon's temple, the temple that David provided for and Solomon built, was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And this is... Uh, an illustration of what it might have been like based on all the information we have from the Bible. It was a glorious place. It was built when Israel was at its peak, its pinnacle, incredibly wealthy. And Solomon, before he went off the rails, was an amazing king. And there was enormous wealth, enough wealth to build a really glorious temple. It was a truly amazing place. And Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it, knocked it down to the last stone. Can I have the next one please, Ian? And this is the temple that they were now building. And so God says there in chapter 2 to these people, do you remember what it used to be like? Do you think the thing that you're doing is nothing? You imagine the difference between that one that was absolutely glorious, built out of the magnificent wealth of Israel, to this one, that is put together and certainly doesn't look any, anywhere near as grand. And so the people are encouraged because they see God with them, but they ask this question, is what we're doing worth it? Does it make a difference? Is it up to it? And one of the things you'll see in terms of the encouragement as you, uh, uh, you look down to, um, uh, where are we? Verse 7, God says to them, I will shake all the nations and the desire of all nations will come and I will fill this house, this one, with glory, says the Lord. And in verse 9, the glory of this present house, this one, this scrappy looking one, the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. It will have a greater glory than this magnificent temple that Solomon built and King David provided for. Why is that? Because this is pivotal to God's plan in history. This is the place that Jesus came to. 
Remember those um, when Jesus was uh, brought to the temple by his parents as a baby? When Anna uh, saw him, and who was the guy? Simeon. And Simeon saw him, and they worshipped God because they saw the Messiah while he was still a baby, and they knew he was the Son of God. This scrappy old temple was filled with God's glory. So one of the encouragements he's giving them is, what you're doing now might not seem up to much, but it's important to me. It's my commanded work. It's important to me. And you won't necessarily see the glory now, but you will, it will have glory, more glory than you can possibly imagine. There were all sorts of encouragements he gave them. He said, don't be afraid. He said in, uh, in that verse 8, um, he said, I, verse uh, 7 and 8, he said, I'll shake the nations and I'll provide. Yeah, the silver in verse 8, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. Before that, verse 7, I will shake the nations. This house will be filled with glory. The silver is mine and the gold is mine. And remember how this was provided for? By the funds of other nations. Because King Darius said, this will be built from my treasury. This will be run from my treasury. So here we see Haggai prophesying that God will provide and how he will provide. And we see from the record in Ezra that he provided by those means. Marvellous encouragements for these people. There's more in there, but I'm running out of time. So what are the applications for us? I'm sure you can see that there are loads and loads of applications. But here are some, just to think on, for us all. Devotion to God. Being devoted to God is completely important. Because it's from our devotion that follows our obedient kingdom service. If we aren't devoted to God, we won't be serving him in the kingdom. We won't be looking to see how we can contribute to its growing. But even then, our service needs to be obedient service. So it's not about us rushing off and doing what we think is the good thing. As Alex Buchanan used to tell us, be careful of uncommanded works. In other words, do the things God commands you to do. Don't do the things you imagine he commands you to do or you might like him to command you to do. Do what he commands you to do. That follows a devotion to God. There's also a point there about don't be put off being obedient to God. Don't be put off. They were looking at the situation around, the political situation the economic situation, and they were being put off being obedient to God. And the same can apply for us. Are we put off by the situation? We can't do that in this time. Now is not the time. Because what we saw here was God came and said, now is the time. And what's more, when we are obedient to God, doing things in his time, the blessing follows A verse we can't look at, um, it's actually verse 19 of chapter 2. He says, God says, from this day on, I will bless you 
And in chapter 15, he says, think about, from this day on, think about how things used to be. So he's saying, when you weren't obedient, it was a mess and it was tough. But now you are obedient, things are going to be different. I will bless you. And we've seen some of the, the, uh, the ways that he blessed them there. And God will provide for his work. That was one of the blessings. They were doing God's commanded work. God will provide for that work. We've already seen that with the temple there that the blessing may not seem, well, we may not see it now. It might be not seen till later and that can be discouraging. If you're doing something and it doesn't appear to be blessed, God doesn't appear to be doing things with it. What is telling us is don't be put off by that because what you're doing now is important. I need you to do it now because the blessing might come then and you might not see that blessing. But just believe me, I need you to do it and there will be a blessing for the kingdom. And it might not be till we're in heaven do we look back and see the outcome of that blessing. And going with that, (coughs) our work may seem insignificant yeah, do you think this temple is nothing? This scrappy thing you're building compared to the glory that, that used to be that was destroyed. Your work may seem insignificant, but it isn't. What it means is Sue preparing the coffee. That's not insignificant work. The other Sue wrestling over the books so we get an annual report and know what we're doing with the money. That can be soul-destroying, but Sue, that's worship. That is worship. It is not insignificant work. What we do, in our view, might seem insignificant, but before God it is not insignificant. So the question for us then is, as a whole, as individuals, for me, for you, for us as a group, are we being put off our devoted obedience? Is there anything that we should be doing that would be devoted obedience to God that we should be doing but that we're putting off are we saying the time's not right are we saying we don't have the resources are we saying I don't have the time because we can see from this passage that God can overcome all of those things but it requires a step forward on our part first to be devoted to him to have that awesome respect of him So is God saying to us, go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy in your own house? Is God asking us that question? Let's just stop and pray for a moment. Father God, we want to bring you the glory, the glory of this, well, we've looked at the story of Haggai, the story of Israel at this this crucial point in history about the re-establishment of that nation that is to be a testimony and a witness. Lord, we've looked at how when the people turn to you in awesome devotion, 
<coughs> and began to be obedient to you, doing the work that you were commanding them, you blessed. You blessed the work and you blessed them with the provisions that they needed. And Father God, we ask that you might speak to our hearts. And if you are asking us that question, individually or corporately, Lord, we, we pray that you would challenge us with that and you would give us what it takes to be devoted to you. And Lord, there might be a time in the future when we're confronted with those questions over some, some work, some aspect of your kingdom. Now is not the time. We don't have the resources. We don't have the time. Lord, we pray that you might bring this back to our memories, that we might look at things with your eyes and be prepared to step forward obediently in faith. Lord, we ask for your blessing. We ask that you would bless us, Lord, with that devoted obedience, because all other blessings follow from that. We praise you and thank you, Lord. Amen.